Uh, this is pretty much Pop and Culture Podcast. And what, you got time to listen to a pop culture podcast, but you can't take five minutes to call your mother. Today we're talking about Jewish comedy and its relationship with anti-Semitism. <laughs> I'm Mark Linsen. We're primed to get hate mail, not for doing this accent, but for how poorly I'm doing this accent. Uh, introduce yourselves. I'm Al Baker, and I think this podcast is going to close after one night. <laughs> I'm Sarah Lynn Bruck, and I wish I would have listened to my Jewish husband and not ordered that Reuben sandwich from an Italian restaurant in the Poconos. My name is Lawrence Ware, and I had pork, so I'm sorry, guys. I'm Daniel LaBelle, and I'm just trying to figure out what I got myself into. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel has been on the show several times before, but not, not in the current season, not with the current regime. What happened? Did it, was there a mutiny? Did all the old people uh, rebel? And Something like that. Something like that. There were, there were uh, <laughs> Nothing like that. Nothing there was a like pogrom. That. I, you should not joke about pogroms. That's not. No, let's not set the bar there for the beginning of this discussion. Hey, Daniel jokes about pogroms in his movie. What, may, I'm not allowed to joke about pogroms. I guess that's the thing. I don't know the rules. That's okay. Occasionally on this podcast, we've done different identity politics things related to media. And we did a Korean films episode and we did a couple Native American related episodes. And we did a TV aimed specifically at black audiences episode. But we've never actually done a Jewish stuff episode. And so we're trying to figure out what that would be. And, you know, it is of the moment now. And Daniel just put out a movie that addresses both the comedy and the anti-Semitism thing straight on. Do you want to sort of give us a thesis statement to run with here or something? Uh, Well, the movie's called Reconquistador. It's like a half documentary, half stand-up special. I went back to Spain to trace my Jewish roots. I have uh, roots of which are Sephardic Jewish, which are Jews that lived in Spain who were kicked out during the Spanish Inquisition. Not for being Jewish, just for being late on their rent, but, uh, no, for being Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I wanted to explore my roots and explore, uh, anti-Semitism and do stand up and see if I can merge those worlds. Could you tell us a bit? So I watched a movie today and what I was really interested in. Clearly an extremely personal thing for you to make a movie about for several reasons. And I was interested in the genesis of it. Did you want to make a kind of personal comedy film and set on that as a topic? Or is this something you've always, this story in this part of your like heritage, something you've always wanted to make something about? I don't think I've ever seen lots of people talk about Jewish heritage in their work, but I don't think I've ever seen anything about Spanish Jewish heritage. Certainly not recently and certainly not from a personal perspective. So what was the kind of order of, of the genesis of this for you? It's kind of interesting because it wasn't something I had wanted to do necessarily, or if I did, it wasn't consciously something I wanted to do. But I did my first album in Scotland, which is where my mom was born. And my family, some of my family anyway, went from Spain to Turkey, from Turkey to Vienna, from Vienna to Scotland. And that's because Jews are always being pushed out of places. And certainly my grandmother had, you know, a matter of days, if not hours, to get out of Vienna in time and wound up in Scotland. So my mom was born and raised in Glasgow, Scotland. So I wanted to do an album there because it's somewhere I spent a lot of my childhood. I was part of the Glasgow Boys Swim Team. I worked in camp as a counselor in the summers in Scotland. Uh, 
I had like this dual life growing up of American me and Scottish me, you know, where I have all my Scottish friends and family and I'd go there in the summers and live here in, well, in New York anyway, in the, the rest of the year. So I had this dual life before social media existed, a secret other life in Scotland. So I wanted to do my first album there and I did. And then when Stand Up Records, Dan Schlissel, who runs Stand Up Records out of Minneapolis, he said, so where do you want to do your second album? I said, well, in the theme of going back to my roots, if we go back more, we'd be in Spain. So maybe that's the place to do it. So he said, okay, great. Let's do it in Spain. And he was his idea. He said, why don't we film it at the same time? And I said, well, if we're going to film it, can we do like a little documentary to go along with the album? And he said, oh, that's a great idea. So the idea was originally do a stand-up special and do like a little companion documentary. But then we found the documentary was pretty interesting and was more than like the 10, 15 minutes we planned it would be. And I thought, okay, let's merge them. Let's see if we can kind of combine these two things because they're both related anyway. I'm in Spain to do the album because of this fact. And maybe we can make a film like that. So that was an idea we had while we were filming. But when we got back, I freaked out. I said, there's nothing, there's nothing there. I don't think I said one interesting thing or it was any good. So I said, I want to, I want to kill the project. And Dan said, well, you know, it cost me a lot of money, which is fair, you know. I said, okay, so how much do I owe you? I'm going to start saving up and paying you back to kill this project. So it was around $20,000. So I kept trying to save up $20,000 to pay Dan back. Instead of just paying him in increments, which is probably what I should have done, I was trying to get to 20000 to pay him back so I could kill the project. I couldn't get there. And one day my friend Bruno came over. He's a film editor. He's like, well, let me see this thing. So I said, here, take it. And I gave him the hard drive. He came back a few weeks later he's with a rough cut. He said, look at this. I said, hey, that's not bad. I don't remember any of that. You know, it had been a few years. I said, uh, this is a lot better than I remember. He's like, yeah, you're being really hard on yourself. He's like, why don't you hire me to edit this thing and see if we can make a film out of it? I watched the rough cut again. I watched it with my wife and we both agreed, yeah, there is a film here. So Bruno edited it, did a great job, I think. And I was surprised that there was a good, I think, a good film there. And I didn't have to pay back the $20,000. <laughs> when did you film it? 20, I don't remember. I don't remember. I, but you got married in between, you know, since then, right? And then have you had children since then? Two girls, yeah. Two girls. So would you show them this movie at some point? They might be too young at this point. Oh, they, they saw it because it's playing some festivals and I had to bring them, you know, walking in and out of the theater as they get loud. But I, I brought them to, they played in New York and um, I forget the name of the cinema in Lincoln Square. They played it and they were there for that. I think we had talked about this, I think, last time, seeing yourself in movies, you know, and your daughters are literally going to be able to see themselves in your film, which is such a gift. But my husband had talked about one thing that he loves about growing up. You know, he's around our age, you know, he's in his fifties. He grew up being able to watch himself in these films. And so we were talking about Crossing Delancey. Have you guys seen that movie? This is where Josh's family was raised. Both his parents are from Lower East Side in Brooklyn. And it was one of the first movies that he saw where he actually got to see himself. And I just thought as a sort of a starting off point, just that idea of seeing the power of being able to see yourself reflected back at you on screen. 
I'll tell you my experience. The first time I saw it, it was pretty thrilling to be like, wow, I'm on a big movie screen. That's pretty cool. I don't know if I'd ever get to do that in my life. And here I am in a theater with lots of people watching. And look at me, I'm like massively tall. I'm on this big movie screen. (laughs) So that was really cool the first time. The second time I started getting a little more critical when I watched it and I'd be like, uh, this part, I don't like how it came out. And I'd start cringing a little bit in the theater. I said, okay, this isn't, this isn't as fun as the first time. And then the third time I watched it, it was unbearable. I had to leave the movie theater and I came back in for the Q and A and I just trashed my own film to the point that the audience started to like defend me and say, Hey, look, it's not bad. We liked it a lot. You know, I said, okay. Well, I've seen it too many times. <laughs> that got a laugh. But I said, look, you know, I, I can't watch it anymore. So now I, I can't watch it anymore, especially not with an audience. I just sit there and cringe. I'm like, I shouldn't have said that, or that didn't come out right, or that, that punchline fell a little flat. And I just can't, I can't do it. The first time I genuinely enjoyed it. Well, at least you had that one time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's super interesting. You hit. So, like, I've, written music before and I have a similar that is really really it's like nails on a chalkboard to hear my own music did you know that that was going to be the the response that you were going to have have you always hated to hear and what I know this isn't kind of the topic but I'm now deeply interested in I've never watched myself you know I've I've done stand-up for many years but I'm watching the audience I'm not watching me I used to tape myself and I had a hard time always watching the tapes you know you're not what you think you are in your head you know, and then it's kind of hard to meet that reality sometimes and be accepting of who you are rather than who you think you are or how you think you come off. Yeah. How you're seen, like how the audience is receiving you is different than sometimes the way that you think that you're coming off. Yeah. I always thought that when I was like writing and performing, it was easy to just think in terms of the work or like the music or the st- the thing that I was making. And then when you hear a recording of yourself or you see a recording of yourself, you're confronted with the fact that it's not just the work, it's also you performing it, which is something that you get to kind of safely ignore most of the time. Exactly. Yeah, very true. Yeah. When I was a kid, I really admired Jim Carrey, you know, I wanted to be like Jim Carrey. And then sometimes you think, hey, I'm kind of achieving some of that. Not that that's still my goal, but some of that magic that Jim Carrey has. And sometimes you do, but uh, a lot of times you think you do. And then you watch it back and you go, oh, no, I I didn't do that at all. It it looks like somebody trying. A lot of it is being too self-critical. And I admit that. And I'm I'm self-critical of that, too. So (laughs) I bet that Jim Carrey probably looks back on like. The stuff he was doing with the Living Color or Ace Ventura, he probably he probably cringes a little bit, you know, because Jim Carrey goes way over the top <laughs> in some of the stuff that he does. So I'm sure that he probably cringes a little bit. But I'm interested in talking a little bit like wider about Jewish comedy, because really my entryway into Jewish comedy was actually Blazing Saddles, which is actually not a typical Jewish comedy. I mean, it's about black people and rape but but it has many things to do with jewishness or whatnot so what what do you guys think about just like jewish comedy writ large like just like in a broader kind of scope like what's going on with jewish comedy these days as i was hearing daniel i'm you know projecting this onto the topic of we've had a conversation daniel before on this show your first appearance on here about comedy as philosophy and so the sort of being self-critical and you know larry david is very into analyzing the laws you know the unwritten laws of society or Even the Seinfeld observational thing might be coming out of sort of the same thing, although he is, you know, miles away from 
the sort of self-torturing Woody Allen-esque self-deprecation that Daniel, you seem to just have been doing two minutes ago about watching yourself on screen. First of all, just the first part of it. You could say it's a little bit Talmudic, you know, to go in and, and be very analytical of things. And that's a lot of what the Talmud is, is, you know, going into the minutia of things and rabbis arguing over the, the smallest details to try and figure things out. I do think there's something a little bit Talmudic about Seinfeld and Larry David. You know, it's not blatantly Talmudic, but it's certainly this hyper analytical Jewish kind of way of thinking that we see displayed in the Talmud. Blazing Saddles, a great film, very funny film. I guess it's Jewish in that it's Mel Brooks, his fingerprints are all over it, and he's certainly Jewish. And it's also got Richard Pryor's fingerprints all over it. It's an interesting uh, collaboration in in that way. I wouldn't categorize it necessarily as a Jewish film or as a black film. You know, I think it sits as a great comedy with elements of different cultures in it. I don't know if you can really put it in a box and say it's Jewish humor or it's black humor. I don't know. It's both and it's more, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely anti-racist. I mean, and so much of Mel Brooks's comedy is about showing racism as stupid. Nazis are buffoons. And everybody knows. We're all in on the joke, right? We all know this. We all share this value. I think you're absolutely right. I think if Mel Brooks had like a mission statement of what he wanted to do with humor, which I don't think he does, but I think if he did, that would be it. It would be to put a spotlight on how stupid racism is. And probably that's born out of being in the generation that fought in World War II as a Jew and, and uh, seeing the atrocities of the Holocaust and thinking, what can I do to um, try and stop this kind of thing in humanity? And I think, you know, we all try our best with what little we have. And, and I think he thought maybe I could just show how stupid it all is. And I'll influence a generation that way to not, you know, want to wipe me out, probably on a, on a personal level. I think that's a lot of it was born out of that. What a lot of Jews have contributed since the Holocaust has had that ulterior motive baked into it, whether they necessarily intended to or not, just because it's so irrational to us that this kind of thing happens to us that uh, we think, well, maybe there's a rational solution to stop it. I don't think there is. I think, you know, we see that just on October 7th, that hate still remains and barbaric massacres still happen. It's not like we're in some great modern time where these terrible parts of human behavior are, we've evolved out of them. And I don't think any amount of comedy films really will change it or, or books or anything. Unfortunately, there's something more going on here. And, but it's certainly in people's interest to try. You know, I think Mel Brooks was trying. I think he was saying like, maybe my contribution in my lifetime to, to protect myself. And maybe other people, too, of other races. And, you know, I don't know how magnanimous he was being with it, but in his own head, but it was to try and be like, let me show how stupid racism is. And maybe people will see this and laugh and then not be that way. Are we seeing much of that now? It seems like Jewish comedy today isn't as explicitly about race or ethnic identity. I don't know. What do you guys think? How would we characterize? Jewish comedy today. That was part of my, when I was framing these questions is like, is it actually a thing today or is it the only reason we still talk about it is because, because of classic comics from what the forties, the fifties, the sixties that were like 
we're in this mode. You know, Jackie Mason, one of Daniel's that I was doing a terrible imitation of at the beginning of the show. It was definitely a more of a both self-proclaimed and imposed identity, right? These identities become more pronounced when people are treating you in a certain way. Some of the first discussions I've had uh, with Lawrence on my podcast have been about like Du Bois and Franz Fanon that are all about how people turn inward and, you know, get all this self-consciousness that comes about from being persecuted. So you could feel there's nothing we can do to change the world, but we can whistle on the way to the graveyard. We can, you know, we can make ourselves feel better. We can comment about it. We can turn inward that way. Whereas comedy made by people now, I was wondering about Adam Sandler, like, you know, he sometimes throws Jewish topic things in, you know, has a thing about Hanukkah or whatever, but it's not Jewish comedy in the way of, you know, it's just, it's like Mel Brooks's silly stuff. It's not specifically because maybe he's not been in a point, you know, where he was pushed into that box. Yeah, he's definitely from the generation after Mel Brooks. He had a different experience growing up in America, which was certainly more open to Jewish people and open to Jewish culture. He was on SNL as a young guy, so he was pretty embraced. So there is that. Let's stop for some sponsor talk. This episode is sponsored by Every Plate. In 2024, resolve to stop stressing over what's for dinner. Every Plate provides plenty of delicious variety with more than 25 tasty and affordable recipes that change each week. I just last night had sweet potato harvest salad, which, you know, I've made my own salads before, but not with seven different things in it. The apple, the cranberries, the sweet potato shallot, crispy fried onions, cheese, creamy honey Dijon. My wife said, and I quote, this is the perfect salad for me. So I like the meal kit thing. I hate going to grocery stores. I want to contribute to family dinners and not just make the very few things that I know how to make consistently. We tend to get a lot of takeout, which gets expensive. And I've worried in the past that the meal kit thing is also too expensive to be sustainable. But every plate is America's best value meal kit. So cheaper than your average fast casual meal. This is a very easy way to eat affordably without compromising on quality. The recipes include only the highest quality ingredients, including sustainably sourced seafood. You know your meals will be fresh and flavorful. And it's not just dinners. They've got breakfast 24-7, 15 minutes or less meals, feel-good food, big batch faves, and you can add over 25 convenient sides to your orders, breakfast items, lunches, snacks, desserts, and more. And I know we've talked about other meal kit companies on this podcast before. In fact, every plate is now owned by HelloFresh, which owns Green Chef. So it's a, it's a friendly competition. Get a meal for $1.49 plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49pretty. Subscription must be active to qualify and redeem the $1 stake. That's up to a $110 value you're getting. Get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal plus $1 stakes for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49pretty. Subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 stake. Check out every plate, America's best value meal kit. I forgot to address the self-critical part of what you were asking about, saying like Woody Allen and stuff. I'll come back to Adam Sandler in a second. Just to answer Mark's second part of his question. So I don't like to be so self-critical. It's something I, I try to fight against, you know, in the internal battle. I don't like to be that way. First of all, something that's been a few years, you've evolved. From when you made it to when it came out, you're a different person. I think all the cells in your body change every seven years. You're like a totally different person. So 
when I make things now, I try to get them out as quickly as possible because I'm less self-critical then because it kind of represents me now. You know, my feelings now, the way I act now, my skill level now. Very hard to watch something older. It's hard to watch yourself in general, but that part I'm pretty good about fighting against if it's current. I don't hate the sound of my own voice. I know what you mean about Woody Allen. I hope I'm not there. I hope I'm not coming off like that. I'm just being honest about this film. I should distinguish between Woody Allen in the 1960s movies where I'm kind of referring to of, you know, bananas or whatever, that character that he was set up versus whatever peace he's attained with himself at this point with all the cancellation, the hate and whatever coming at him that he seems just blithely unself-critical. Like, oh, life is too short that he's gotten over that long ago, whatever. I admire that about him. I believe that he's innocent on the accounts that he's being charged against. That's my personal. I can't know. I'm not God. But I've often thought, you know, if you're innocent and the whole world is coming against you and saying you're not, I don't think I could function. I'm amazed how he does. He just keeps working through it, putting out books, putting out films, writing, performing jazz. Whether he's guilty or innocent, I kind of find that amazing. Maybe because of all this, it's made him less self-critical. I think that's kind of interesting. Like, if everybody's so critical of you, like, there's almost a rebellion. It'd be like, well, there's nothing left for me to criticize about myself. They're already way over the top. So uh, what am I self-conscious about? They hate me anyway. Right? Yes, let's stick with this as a psychological case study rather than derailing the conversation to talk about whether Woody Allen is innocent for 20 minutes. I, I, we have a whole <laughs> separate episode about stuff like that that I will point people to. I'm not his attorney. I'm not going to argue for him. Definitely don't be his lawyer. But you're, you're about to say something about Adam Sandler. What, what are you going to say about him? Oh, so Adam Sandler, I think like a lot of my life, I just wanted to be funny. You know, I just wanted to be a comedian, not necessarily be a Jewish comedian. Just I am Jewish, you know, but I don't go up there and be like, you know, writing jokes with that mindset. Like, let me write from the Jewish perspective. I just write, you know, from me, which includes being Jewish and, and lots of other things. All the things that come together to make me, me. I don't think about them consciously. I just see the world through the lens I'm given. And then in the Reconquistador movie, I did do a bunch of jokes about being Jewish. And I thought that was also appropriate based on the theme of why I was there. But I don't necessarily try to write for my identity. I just try to write for what I find funny. And I often get this question of like, would you say your humor is very Jewish? And I'd say, well, I feel I'm very Jewish. So probably anything I output into the world is very Jewish. Same as if I was black or anything else, it would be, you know, an output of that identity. But I don't think myself or I can't speak for Adam Sandler, but I think that like he probably also just looks at things and sees where the funny is and puts that out there. And sometimes it's going to come out Jewish and sometimes it's going to come out just not necessarily so Jewish because it's just what he sees. I had this idea for an app once called I Noticed, like the like an iPhone, I just be like, you remember Pokemon, the Pokemon app where they could you could scan like real life? Oh, yeah. But you could see where the Pokemons are. <laughs> it would be like you could scan with your camera real life and you could see where the humor is. So like anybody who sees anything funny in that spot can mark it in the app and you can pick up your app anywhere in the world. Eventually, the whole world would be filled with millions, if not billions of funny things that people notice. 
course, time, you know, buildings change and signs change. And so some of the stuff would get lost. So you'd have to update it. But I think like we all see the same thing or like in, in a piece of art in a museum, everybody looks at it and sees their own thing. We all see the same thing. Some of us see humor in it where some of us just see a thing. I think that would be really interesting because you'd see all the different perspectives on what's funny about something. You know, we just did an episode on the How To with John Wilson show a while ago. And that comment makes me think you're still thinking like a New Yorker, like that there are people, hundreds of people a second that cross any given square yard of property and they're going to see something where I'm like, what is funny from my cul-de-sac? I only see the five notes I previously made because I'm in the goddamn suburbs. Well, anybody who has the app would be training himself to see the funny also. You'd start wanting to be more a part of the app and the community. And so you'd start forcing yourself to see things that you normally wouldn't stop and see. I suppose, you know, if, if the app took off and it was big in my dreams. But, I, you know, that's how comedians basically develop as comedians. You know, they, they notice a few funny things. And then people say, you're funny and you should do comedy. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I noticed a few funny things. And then they go up there and they run out of those things real quick. And some of them get a laugh and some of them don't. They're like, ah, oh, crap, I, I like this. I like the feeling of getting laughter. I like the feeling of sharing my ideas. I better find some more funny things. And then they start training themselves to find funny things, whereas everybody else is just going about their life as they should. And nothing wrong with that at all. People are supposed to get through life and not necessarily stop and find funny things all the time. But, you know, if your job is to find funny things, you will start looking with that intention. Can we talk, Mark, you had brought up in the notes about sort of the intersection between feminism and Jewish comedy in people like comedians like Amy Schumer and Sarah Silverman. There's also shows like Broad City and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, from my perspective, it comes back to normalizing this kind of talk. It comes down to normalizing that these are people who are very three-dimensional and that, like you said before, Daniel, that it's you're not just someone who happens to be Jewish. You're a lots of other things. And I find it really exciting that with a lot of the female comedians out now who are also that happen to be Jewish are exploring all of these different dimensions that aren't just satire, for example. I mean, I'm brought to mind, I don't think I've told this story to you for before, but you know, the whole point of the partially examined life is this excessive looking at yourself. And so I wrote a little manifesto about it at some point of how there has to be some limit. You can't just you know, make yourself self-conscious and observe yourself all the time and over-intellectualize everything. And some wag on the internet responded like, you're a chick. In other words, this is classically what is thought of as this female over-analysis that somehow philosophy, and I think this is the same phenomenon that I was referring to with Du Bois and Fanon and things, that if you're in a position historically where, you know, you can't just say the word and the world changes, then your energy gets pointed inward and so that is a similar intellectual pattern as the philosopher who is just sitting in an armchair doing that. That the same thing happens. So wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Somebody said you're a chick. They put that in writing. That attitude. Wait, they actually put that out there. <laughs> well, and see, here's me taking an obnoxious comment and interpreting it philosophically and saying, 
oh, maybe there actually is something in the what is represented as classic female comedy or intellectual activity, what I've observed that might correspond with philosophy. Franz Fanon. Maybe it's a compliment. <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois. Chick. Cornell West. Chick. Lord Square. Hey. If you're chick. saying like, all of us are chicks, all of if us. you're saying feminist philosophy is influenced by those people and vice versa. Yes. hundred percent. I'm just saying like, what the fuck? Who, who writes on the internet? Yo, man, you're a chick. Like, what is that? That's terrible. That is the internet for you. That's yeah, <laughs> that's right. Imagine if there was that level of hesitation of people who write on the internet, that would be wonderful. Like, I shouldn't write this. You know? <laughs> imagine, imagine if everybody... But, like, do some self-reflection. Like, do I really want this to follow me for the rest of my life? I probably should. If there was only that level of accountability based on, you know, of people who post on the internet. So do we have any insightful observations about specifically feminist Jewish humor? Other than, yes, I recognize it. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I mean, I, I know it when I see it. I like it quite a bit. I have no insights. I'm going to leave that to you guys. <laughs> I watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I like that series I, and Broad City as well. Sometimes what I don't like is when shows become too much about the message and the humor becomes only the vehicle to push the message. I think that's kind of what happened with Amy Schumer. And why I stopped watching Amy Schumer was because I felt like I like the humor to be first. It's great to have a message in your humor if you, you, you know, but I think first and foremost, my opinion is that comedy's first goal should be to entertain, to make you laugh. You're a comedian, you're advertising, I make you laugh. You should be coming through on that point. It should be organic too. You know, I don't think you should be forcing yourself to write about a topic over and over again, because now you're the person who covers that topic. I haven't forced myself to write on anything ever. Like I've never been like, I need to write a joke about anti-Semitism or something. It's just like, oh, I see something funny about it. I'll write about it. Once your like mission goal becomes, I'm going to preach about this thing. And then I'm going to use humor to make it palatable for people. I start to tune out. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I think, started to do that towards the end, and that's why I stopped liking it as much. I think Broad City is a good example of a show that's funny first. I don't know. I didn't watch the later seasons, but what I saw, I liked. I didn't get that feeling from them. I did get that feeling from Amy Schumer. It's not a criticism of Amy Schumer. It was like an agenda-driven show using comedy as fuel. I don't like that. I like comedy should be the main thing. And if your perspective on things that's funny touches on things, great, you know, but it almost feels like false advertising to me. It shouldn't be in the category of comedy at a certain point. It should be in the category of, you know, whatever the thing is that you're trying to sell. And that's kind of when I would cringe in the movie theater too at my own film and be like, <sighs> sometimes in the, not in the stand up, but in the documentary part, I'd, I'd know that I needed to talk about the thing. And I felt like I didn't really have much more to say on it. And I felt like some of it was filler, you know, and, and I know when, when I'm seeing myself do that. And I go, ah, we needed enough material for a film, too. That's a really interesting kind of gloss on why it's hard to do, just to circle the topic back to, like, Jewish comedy or identity comedy with a focus on Jewish comedy. Why it's hard to do that well, because it's equally hard. It's hard to do message-driven comedy because, as you say, if you're advertising it as comedy, same reason it's hard to do message-driven anything, because if you're advertising it as music, comedy, dance, whatever it is, people rightly want to see a good piece of music, dance, whatever it is, first. Like, really good message-driven art 
finds a way to explore the message in a way that only that genre of art can. So you manage to get a piece of art that you couldn't have got without the message and a piece of message you couldn't have got without the art. And with that thought in mind, it's kind of interesting to think about, like just again, the very question of identity-based humor, like Jewish humor, black humor, what have you. Because I think I'm kind of in two minds about this, because part of me wants to say, really, like Jewish humor is comedy by Jewish people whenever they talk about anything that's kind of vaguely connected to Jewish identity, whether that's like explicitly if they're talking about anti-Semitism or if they're just like playing with Jewish stereotypes or ideas of Jewish humor like Larry David does all the time. Basically, the thought is as past me that wants to say it's just Jewish humor by the fact that they are Jewish and they're talking about things that are connected with Jewish identity. But there is also a real sense in which it doesn't quite rise to that level. I've, I get the feeling Daniel wants to say that doesn't quite rise to the level of identity-based humor because you're not pursuing a particular agenda or message with it. I'm not sure which way I come down on that. Will there be a whole generation of comedians right now who are like trying to get on stage and rile people up for Israel versus Gaza or something like, I don't know that I want to see that show. If that's actually what any comedians are trying to do. Or if that's a comedy show or if that's a TED talk, what's the intention? You've got to think, but there's people like George Carlin and Bill Hicks, whatever, and that at times i mean kind of maybe it's grist to daniel's mill because the weirdest and worst parts of bill hicks show were, were always when he just like stopped telling jokes and got on his high horse about how everyone needs to take magic mushrooms in order to be a, a full and good person but it, <laughs> I, I also feel like that's one of the ways that you get to expand what comedy is bill hicks was an interesting case in point but uh, lenny bruce would be like mm-hmm. equally definitely, so like the very definitely. like Lawrence and daniel will both know better than me but I, that, like my sense of the history of comedy is that lenny bruce was the first guy to start talking about like racism from the perspective of the oppressed person in that context or at least popularly and that kind of expanded and that is absolutely a kind of it's a pretty ham-fisted way of doing that it's very much like message first but by doing that he expanded the idea of what comedy could be i saw you shaking your head Lawrence. tell me who did it first i'm not going to completely disagree like like, there are many black comedians who were doing it before him but that's not the point the point that you're making is is a good point that he was a person who definitely popularized it and those black comedians were oftentimes working in the black spaces and weren't like getting mainstream appeal whereas lenny bruce was absolutely mainstream so I think that there's something to be said for what he did to make it kind of mainstream and, and kind of acceptable. Like without Lenny Bruce, there is no Chris Rock. There is no Dave Chappelle. Like, like he kind of really kind of helped lay the foundation for them to do kind of do what they're doing. Was it Dick Gregory that Dick was sort Gregory, of st- started this that's at the my, same time? That's my dude. That's my dude. Cosby. That's my guy. Got to meet him one time. I got, I went to perform at the improv and I got to hang out with him afterwards. I loved Dick Gregory. He was, a, I knew him personally. He was a frat brother of mine. I loved Dick Gregory. He's sort of known as somebody who kind of abandoned comedy in favor of the messages that I'm telling are more important. I've never seen a whole set by him. He was still definitely a comedian first, but Dick Gregory in his heyday, he was working in like during the civil rights movement. It's kind of, it's, it's a little different time, you know, for him. Really interesting guy. Yeah. It is. It's so time specific. I think comedy back then when it was changing over to where you could actually talk about real issues, it could kind of be a little didactic, you know, sometimes and kind of preachy. And I like that it's evolved. I mean, I'm with you, Daniel. If I'm going to go see a comedian, I think I want the funny first. 
And if you have a, a powerful message in there, that's really, really great. But comedy has to come first. The funny has to come first. Otherwise, I do feel like I'm just, I'm being lectured to. I mean, this opens the door to like Gerard Carmichael and his kind of brand of comedy. And what was that woman? She was huge. She did like a comedy special and she wasn't very funny. And it was like, a very important message. I cannot remember her name. And so, like, Gerard Carmichael, he's pretty funny. But she wasn't very funny to me. You know, it was really more about the message with her than the funny. And so you get all brands of that. Al, it looks like you're about to disagree with me. Go ahead, Al. Not disagree necessarily, but I think this is kind of... Stand-up comedy has a really interesting place in the culture in that it's which just involves one person talking to a room full of people for a really long time. Yeah, there's monologues in theater, and yeah, there's, like stage debates or speeches or, or whatever. But if you're talking about a public art of oratory, stand-up comedy is really all there is. So I've often thought that like it's not really any... This conversation's been going on for... Like, not this specific one, but like forever people have talked about how funny comedy needs to be in order to qualify as comedy or like, are you just doing politics or whatever else? But I always kind of thought there isn't really a cultural space for people to just stand up and say, here is like two hours worth of spoken word material that I'm going to string together into an entertaining story with an impactful message. And there will be like jokes along the way. There is because there's like storytelling. So maybe is the lesson like people who want to do more message driven stuff should just do story hour events. And Well, I was Googling Spalding Gray as we were talking here, because that was somebody that I thought was a comedian. And then as I saw more of his movies, like either he became less of a comedian or just found it somehow imprisoning that you know, Daniel, it sounds like you were talking about when a comedian is like, I have to get this message out that it's like the message is a prison and it doesn't let them be funny. Whereas I've always felt like the few times I've tried to like write a freaking stand up set or whatever, that actually having to be funny on a regular basis seems more of the prison to me that I want to go and just be more natural about it. Now, your way of doing comedy, Daniel, I feel like has more of that storytelling element that like, Yes, it's going to be funny. It's going to have, but it's not about like pace the jokes, put the joke, you know, it's got to have the laugh every six seconds or whatever, you know, that those really programmatic comics do, which if you really took seriously, the comedy has to come first. Maybe it drives you to that philosophy. Yeah. I just don't like deceptive marketing. If you're signed up for that kind of thing, I guess if you're like, look, I want to hear somebody who's mostly going to talk about feminism and kind of a Hannah Gatsby who's going to occasionally make me laugh or whatever. I guess once you know that that's what it is and you can decide that's my cup of tea, there's nothing wrong with that. There should be room for that, I think. I don't know that I'm such a stickler in, in terms of how you label it, only in as far as if you're tricking people. If, if someone doesn't know what they're getting into and you're like, this is comedy, and they leave disappointed because their life has been real heavy and their job sucks and their marriage is falling apart and they just needed something light to laugh at and you just tricked them into an hour of feminism... That seems like deceptive marketing. I didn't like the Barbie movie for that reason. I thought it was marketed so differently than what it was. It's not that I thought the movie itself, there's not a place for that. And I just thought like you bring your little girl to see it because she likes Barbie dolls, whether or not you like or agree with the message, it's not what you bought the ticket for. It's not what you signed up for. That's not to say you can't have a message in a Barbie movie. I just thought the message was first. The Barbie was just a vehicle to get you to listen to the message like with the stand-up where it's like oh the message is first it's like dangle comedy you like laughing right you like comedy come on in here and now i'm gonna push my agenda on you it's like you like barbie right you like barbie come on in here and now i'm gonna push my message on you 
I don't feel like that's fair or honest. I wonder if like, I mean, you think of it in any kind of storytelling and because I write books, I always think in terms of literature. And I think some of the most powerful books are the ones that have both, that have a really, really great story that's absorbing and pulls you in. But also there's a message that that also makes the reader or the viewer part of this thing. And when you're talking about something like an anti-Semitic message that will involve your audience, no matter what their background is, I think that makes the comedy or the film or the television show, whatever, kind of rise up to this different level. You know, like we look at these books like The Book Thief or The Immortalists or, you know, Jonathan Safran for, you know, wh- however you think of that guy. But these are books that have those embedded messages. But on top of that, instead of dangling, hey, you like me as an author, right? Here, I'm going to throw this message at you. He gives you a great story. You know, he gives you really compelling characters. And I think if we're talking about message-driven storytelling, that's for me just, that's as good as it gets. It's just what's hard about about making good art. You've got to do both. Because if you're just doing the art without any sense of message, I mean, firstly, one of my kind of hobby horse talking points, which I'm not sure has come up on this podcast before, is that it's basically impossible to write or to create any piece of art without it expressing something which you could regard as a political message. If you don't think you're doing it, then usually what you're doing is just echoing like the most easy to reach for political sentiments like in, in the culture that you're currently living in. It just usually means that you're being like unreflective. If you take yourself to be doing no political commentary whatsoever, usually just means that your work is going to reflect like whatever the kind of simplest version of the political reality that you're living in is in. I want to see an essay by you of like the nihilism of Gallagher, you know, Gallagher or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Caratop expresses the spectacle that indicates that the, our society is collapsing. I'm interested why you think that would be the, the Gallagher one would be a hard essay to write. Like clearly you only like once a society has got to Gallagher being on TV, there is nothing left. Like there's nothing left for the culture to root for. Well, watermelon represents your ego. Really fucking does though, doesn't it? <laughs> Mark just derailed you. Mark completely derailed no, like, you. Massively, massively, but I'm back on it. It's okay. <laughs> and it's okay to like not to create art that isn't too introspective, but that's just trivia. Then all you're doing is creating trivia and there's a great need for high quality, trivial art in the world but you're never really going to go beyond that. And the, but the problem with doing like worthy art, like something that does have a message as like almost everyone on this panel has now said, it's really, really hard to do it. Annoy people in the process. Mm -hmm. That's why I would take issue with you about your reader, the Barbie movie. Firstly, because I think it was really, they were really clear in the marketing about what kind of movie it was, it was going to be, but also because they made, I mean, we talked a lot on the podcast about how they, how it fell short of its, ambitions in terms of being a a groundbreaking piece of feminist filmmaking but what they did a really good job of was making something that was delivering a message that had to be delivered about barbie as a cultural phenomenon also fun in a way that was relevant to what barbie is as a cultural phenomenon i don't know what marketing you saw for barbie but in la it was just giant pictures of Margot robbie in a bathing suit I saw endless interviews of Margot Robbie on TV talking about how she wanted to make an important feminist film with Greta Gerwig. 
Well, that's an interview. I'm talking about the interviews and marketing. You're talking about billboards. You can't. Yeah, you don't get a sense of what a movie's going to be like from a billboard. It's the same as I mean, it was a postmodern thing on Gallagher, basically that it was spectacle. That's what it advertised. It's not going to say this is going to be the funniest movie, but it's going to be a big fucking spectacle, and everybody else is seeing it, and so you should see it too. And so, yeah, okay, <laughs> it did that. It doesn't mean it has to be an empty spectacle like a space opera or whatever. But I think it also comes down to taste. You know what I mean? I think like for you, Al, you may see the Barbie movie as, oh no, they did deliver on what they promised. And Daniel, you may see it the other way. But, you know, when it comes to comedy that is pushing a message, somebody might come away from that and think, that was absolutely brilliant. That was for me. You know, Hannah Gadsby, she delivered on what she promised. I thought it was funny and then also very, very poignant. Or Amy Schumer, you know, you could say the same thing about her or Sarah Silverman. And someone else might get the opposite. They may think that they've just been lectured to for an hour. Like I said, I do think there's a place for Hannah Gatsby and what she does. I just think it has to be marketed properly. You know, I think like you should not go in expecting a night of belly laughs at the club, you know, or it's kind of like you stole their money, you know. The night of belly laughs at the club. One movie that is marketed well is Spaceballs. That is a movie that markets <laughs> well. It does what it needs to do. And great Jewish humor. Love Spaceballs. Top notch. Big Mel Brooks fan here, I'm noticing. Oh, absolutely. Who is it? Anyone who's not a Mel Brooks fan, I can't fuck with him. <laughs> not uh, your kind of people. To wrap things up, have we answered the question? Is Jewish humor actually related to anti-Semitism or are those just two words that have the word Jew in common and that's it? <laughs> I think I've tried to suggest. Daniel's about to ask me about a book that Mel Brooks wrote, probably. I'm going to let him ask me the question, but I will say that Jewish humor is in response. So in the same way that like black humor is oftentimes in response to racism, like it is, it kind of comes out of racism, but it's not like tied to it, but it's response to it. So like Dave Chappelle doing his Dave Chappelle show. Yeah, he did the Rick James stuff, which was funny as fuck. But he also did stuff about stereotypes and whatnot, you know, so it doesn't have to be tied to racism, but it can come out of racism. But I think the same thing is going on with Jewish humor, that it is not necessarily tied to anti-Semitism, but it can come out of it. It can kind of respond to that lived experience of being uh, subjected to anti-Semitism. By saying that it's in response to anti-Semitism, it's got to be tied to that in some way or as a way to counteract it. There's also get really into the weeds. If you're talking about like a kind of art that's associated with like racial identities, say, the way you, you have to understand racial identities is going to be partly defined by the kinds of power structures that they exist in or like the, the relative power they have compared to other racial classes in whatever racial hierarchy you find yourself in. So maybe it's inevitable that if you're talking about an ident identity-based humor or identity-based art of any kind, it's always going to be in response to some kind of oppression, unless you're doing white-based comedy, in which case it's very much not about <laughs> being oppressed. White people are oppressed. I've had green bean casserole. That shit's oppressive. <laughs> I would say, like, you know you're a redneck if, or whatever, is that definitely, like, identity humor, whether it's in response to perceived, uh, is at least a stereotype. Yeah, but there's an element of punching down on yourself with, like, redneck humor mm -hmm. as well, which yeah, is... True also common to all, all of these kinds of things so like you're right there are like there are white people like and in, in the in the uk there's like northern comics 
when we and like we make fun of ourselves for how we all have ferrets and wear flat caps and don't like spending money. <laughs> like the animal ferrets? Yes. Yeah. We Seriously? Have the, the, the stereotype about Yorkshiremen <laughs> is that we keep ferrets up our trousers. Wow. Wow. That's an interesting wow. story. I have never heard <laughs> of that before in my life. Just learn something new today. A hyper local one. A friend of mine, I went to college in Michigan in Ann Arbor, and a friend of mine who from the Detroit area still lives there was into this comedy group called The Youpers. Do you even know what that? So it's like people from the, the Michigan Youpers. UP, from the UP. So it's not that different than like the Canadian Bob and Doug McKenzie kind of thing, but like it was a specific. So I guess whenever you have a distinguishing characteristic, I don't think the Youpers are being marginalized. I mean, other than you don't even know who they are as an ethnic group. You probably, if you live in that area, you either are or you know somebody that talks like that. And so that would be something that would resonate. But even, you know, me from Chicago, so far from Michigan, do not get it. Do not find it funny. Is there going to be a difference between just like local based humor and identity based humor? So like someone from oh, Chicago from might Pearly. get up and- Remember these Monty yeah. Python jokes about particular cities? Like, I don't know where any of these are, you know. <laughs> but again, Monty up. Python, that's a good example of funny as first. I still, no, I completely disagree. I thought Monty Python was dry as fuck. I did not like that. I don't like them at all. <laughs> not a bit. That is not my kind of humor. <laughs> it's also not true that there was no politics in it. It was all very subversive, countercultural stuff. I'm happy you guys enjoy the Monty Python, though. I went to see John Cleese live last week, and I can fill you in on that. Last week? Yes, he just toured. I will save that for the after talk. Daniel, do you have a goodbye word, having not witnessed any of the last five minutes of us bantering because you were running around your house? (laughs) In full disclosure, I have an ear infection in both ears. So that's that's No good. No good. (laughs) That's terrible. It is a somber time, though, for me, and certainly being Jewish right now is a bit scary to say the least, but I think I'd still be able to to pull off a better show if I wasn't on. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate every all you coming on. I was going to say that Will Brooks wrote a, a book about his life, an autobiography, and it's very good. It came out long ago. And it's- yeah, it came out just like a year or two ago, right? Oh, really? Yeah, we have it. I would even recommend not getting the book, but getting the audio book, which is what I did. It's him reading the book. So it's like you get a many hour Mel Brooks performance. I had a very bad personal experience with Mel Brooks. He was a hero to me growing up and I'm not pointing the blame at him. I'll just say the circumstances wound up very bad and I was very hurt. It was a very tough blow for me. And even with all that, I still love Mel Brooks. Maybe not on a personal level, but on his humor. I know that I'm never going to have him on the show now. Because he, That's he it, offended huh? you. Uh, if, <laughs> even if he insists, no. I mean, if you ever got the opportunity, jump at it. But I'm just saying that usually if somebody kind of, you walk away with your feelings hurt or whatever, you kind of want to have nothing to do with them. But I like Mel Brooks so much that I still listen to like, I don't know, 20 hours of him doing this audiobook and <laughs> enjoyed the hell out of it and would recommend it to anybody. That's a great place to end it. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.